Saints, it's good to be with you this morning. If you would, let's pray with, uh, with one another. Go to the Lord and trust in anticipation that he will meet us in our weakness and our need, especially even as we look to his word. He is faithful to minister to us always. So join me now. Let's go to our faithful God. Our Father in heaven, you are holy, and we are mindful that we are not. You are all-powerful, and we are weak. You know everything, and there is so much that we don't know. So we pray for you to come and meet us in our weakness and in our need. We pray quite simply that what we don't know that you would teach us, that what we are not you would make us. And we pray that most of all we would behold your son who is our substitute, who stood in our place, who took our punishment, and who has provided us with righteousness, who has secured our resurrection and life forever with you. Show us Christ today, we pray. And as we see him, we trust that we will be changed, that we will be stirred in love for you and in love for each other. Come now, Father, send your spirit and do it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, friends, we are all far worse off than we like to acknowledge. Um, Many times, I think many of us, we've gone into many a church service and One of the last things that it seems okay to do is to confess how wretched we are. May it never be that way here amongst us. May we stare in the face the reality of our sin and corruption. May we speak honestly about what we are in and of ourselves. And may we always herald the work of Christ in the place of sinners. May we always look to Christ and to him alone. Charles Spurgeon is noted for saying about preaching in general, He says, if there's no Christ in your sermon, sir, then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. I hope, saints, that you come here every Sunday eager to hear the word of God, and perhaps even more pointedly, I pray you come eager to hear the word of Christ, because he is your only hope, he is my only hope. And so we look to the scripture again this morning in the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go and open them to Genesis chapter 21. But I am mindful all the time of the words of Jesus in John chapter 5 where he speaks to a Jewish audience and he tells them that they search the scriptures thinking that in them they will find eternal life. But Christ says it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. That's true from Genesis 1 to the end in Revelation 22. It is all ultimately about Christ. We rejoice in that every week. The scriptures hinge on Jesus, and we're going to see that very pointedly today. And therein, the fact that the scriptures bear witness to Christ, therein lies our salvation. So we're going to be considering today Genesis chapter 21 and effectively the bulk of chapter 22. We're going to be looking at 21 verse 1. 22 in verse 19. The scripture text, the sermon text, I should say, was read in the assembly just a few moments ago, so you are familiar with it. My objective, my plan for the sermon today is to consider these two chapters in four scenes, four scenes. It's a narrative text. We're going to look at scene one through four, and we will apply and we will reflect 
on the things that are contained in the Word as we go through. So we will begin with scene number one. Beginning in chapter 21 and verse 1 through verse 7, scene 1, the Lord keeps his promise. The Lord keeps his promise. Now remember in all of this business with Abraham and Sarah, it has been a minute that they have been waiting on this promised child. They've been waiting for a while. I think about how we are so impatient as a human race. I think in our day, we certainly live in a culture where instant gratification is a thing, and a year or two years or five years seems like a really long time. The span of time that Abraham and Sarah had been waiting for this promised child to be born could be measured in decades, not years. I think we should keep that in mind. The clear emphasis of this section, these first seven verses of Genesis 21, is that the Lord has delivered on his promise. You can see that in verses 1 and 2. Like, look at these things that are repeated. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Verse 2, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now, as we've thought about for several weeks now, God has been working in Abraham, and he's been working in Sarah this whole time. He's kind of been wearing them down, sort of reducing them down as it pertains to their own strength, their own confidence in themselves. He's brought them quite literally to the end of themselves. I mean, they are very old. And at this point, the only way that Sarah is going to have a child is through a miracle through an act of God that transcends the normal just processes of childbearing, that transcends this sort of ordinary providence in how the Lord has made the world. Now, this whole scenario where he has made Abraham and Sarah wait, where he's been reducing them down, where he's brought them to the end of themselves, where the only way a child could be born is through his miraculous intervention, This tells us a decent bit about how God works. God works this way repeatedly in the Scripture. Think about it. He creates everything out of nothing. At the moment of the ruin of mankind, when Adam and Eve have sinned, He promises a Redeemer. At that moment, He does. When Sarah's womb is dead, and Abraham's body is as good as dead, to use the language of Romans 4.18. Because he's over 100 years old, God gives them this promised child. Repeatedly, when Israel is facing elimination at the hands of an enemy that is much greater than them, God delivers. Fast forward a number of years. When a man named Lazarus laid dead in a tomb for four days, Jesus arrives. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, at the right time, Christ died for us, and God has made us alive together with him. So you see, the point is, when it comes to anything of significance, when it comes to anything of salvific, eternal significance, God does it all. This is to do two things. First of all, it's to humble us, lest we get it twisted, and think that we contribute something. But it's also to comfort us. Lest we get it twisted and think 
that if we don't do our part well enough, all will be lost. Not so with the Lord. Not only does God work this way, where he tends to push us to the end of ourselves, where there is no earthly human hope, God often waits to act. He waits to work. Think back to Lazarus and his death recorded in John chapter 11. Many will be familiar with the story. Jesus is informed that his friend Lazarus is ill. And Christ, on the basis of that information, having that knowledge, decides to wait two days before he leaves. He's talking to his disciples about it. He says they're going to go to where Lazarus is. He says that Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they're like, man, we don't, we don't really want to go there because there could be a lot of trouble for us there because of you. You know, people don't like you. And then Jesus finally says, well, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad. Jesus arrives on the scene. Realize this, that in Christ waiting to go, it is not that he is indifferent about this whole situation. Jesus weeps when he shows up about the death of Lazarus and the pain he sees. God is not indifferent to our pain. He is not indifferent to our suffering. In his waiting, it is not that God says, it's good that they suffer. God doesn't take pleasure in the suffering of his children. Does he have purposes in suffering? You better believe he does. And they are redemptive. Jesus waited to go to Lazarus so that those present, in Christ's own words, might see the glory of God. He waited so that they might believe. Believe what? That he is the Christ who raises the dead. He waited, and it was recorded on the pages of Scripture so that we might see the glory of God and so that we might believe. So too, with Abraham and Sarah, God waited for the same reason. The same reason. So that they might see the glory of God and we might see the glory of God. So that they might believe that the Lord is a promise-keeping God, that he always does what he says, and so that we might believe it too. Against all odds, when everything seems stacked against us, when too much time from our perspective has transpired, God will always deliver for the saints. The birth of Isaac is a glorious birth because it puts God's mercy and grace, and faithfulness, and steadfast love on full display. Now, Isaac's name means he laughs. That's what his name, translated from Hebrew, would mean. He is the child of laughter. Now, it's only appropriate that he would be named this. Because Abraham and Sarah have both laughed over the promise of God that they would have a child. In chapter 17, Abraham falls on his face and laughs. In chapter 18, Sarah laughs when the Lord says that she's going to have a child. And now, you can see this in verses 6 and 7, others will laugh with them. This is the laughter of joy. And this is that kind of, can you believe this kind of laughter? Put your eyes on verses 6 and 7. 
Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me, not laughing at me like making fun of me, not ridiculing me. They will laugh over me because this is so incredible what the Lord has done. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Well, actually, the Lord did, right? Who would say that? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Laughter of joy and can you believe this kind of laughter? Saints, I trust that there will be a lot of this kind of laughter in the new heavens and the new earth. Think about that for a moment. We don't know how much awareness we will have of things that have transpired before. We know there won't be pain. We know there won't be sorrow. But we will have enough perspective that we will look at each other and laugh and say, can you believe what the Lord has done? We will do that forever. In the meantime, as we wait for that day, we pray that the Lord would give us faith, that we might walk by faith and not by sight. All that by way of scene number one, the Lord keeps his promise to Abraham and Sarah. We now move to scene number two. We're going to look at verses 8 to 21 briefly of chapter 21. Scene number two, the Lord takes care of Hagar and Ishmael. The Lord takes care of Hagar and Ishmael. In verses 8 to 11, we see that Ishmael is laughing at Isaac at this big party that Abraham throws when Isaac is weaned. Now, keep in mind, Ishmael is quite a few years older than Isaac is, so we don't know for sure. But it's not like you know, Ishmael is a toddler laughing at this other toddler. Ishmael is, a, is an older child at this point, laughing and ridiculing Isaac. This is very similar to the language of chapter 16 when we read that Hagar looked upon Sarah with contempt. She looked down upon her. Similar kind of vibe going on. In short, suffice it to say that there's some conflict in the household. Things aren't going well. There's conflict between Sarah and Hagar. There's conflict between Sarah and Hagar's son, Ishmael. And Sarah goes to Abraham with it. And as has happened to him a number of times, he's kind of caught in the middle. And as we've seen in the past, he's like royally blown it in these circumstances before. Uh, but this, this time, at least objectively speaking, it seems to go better. The Lord immediately intervenes to keep Abraham perhaps from doing something foolish. You can see that in verses 12 to 14. The Lord speaks to Abraham and he comforts him essentially because Abraham is grieved by this. He is displeased by what's going on in the house. He's displeased because he loves his son Ishmael. God comforts Abraham and effectively says to him, Abraham, it's okay. Like, I've got this. Your promised offspring is going to come through Isaac. So do what Sarah has said, but do not worry about Hagar and Ishmael. I will take care of them. I will, because he's your child, I will make a nation out of Ishmael too. And the scriptures will bear witness to the fact that that occurs. All of this, if you think about it from the perspective of Abraham, even though God intervenes and says, it's okay, Abraham, don't be sorrowful about this. I'm going to take care of Hagar and Ishmael. It still means that Abraham is going to lose his son. And he's saying goodbye to him. He sends Hagar and Ishmael away at the end of verse 14. Then in verses 15 to 21, God shows mercy 
to Hagar and Ishmael as they wander in the wilderness for a bit. They come to the point of death because their water has run out. Hagar, we see, has given up. She puts Ishmael, apparently he's pretty out of it, right? She just kind of puts him under a bush to die. Perhaps dehydrated, we don't know. Details are left out. The angel of the Lord then speaks to Hagar. She's a ways away, a bow shot's length away because she doesn't want to see her son die. Can't blame her. The Lord speaks to her. The angel of God speaks to her. He's heard, he says, the cries of the boy. And God will have mercy. He will show grace. He opens Hagar's eyes to see a well. He has provided water for her and for Ishmael. And then we're told that God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness. He became an expert with the bow. And then his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt and he will become a great nation. Now in all of this, even in God's dealings with Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness, we see something of how God works too. Hagar and Ishmael had, I think it's fair to say, like even in thinking about Hagar from chapter 16, we sympathize with Hagar because of the situation that she was thrust into. But it's safe to say as well that Hagar and Ishmael have become at least somewhat entitled, it seems. Like that they are entitled to something from Abraham Hagar is looking down upon Sarah. Hagar is inserting herself into the situation, wanting Ishmael to be Abraham's heir, not Isaac. And God sends them out into the wilderness. They come to the point of death and to the end of themselves, and it is there that God shows mercy. There's a couple of ways that I would describe this kind of working of God in our experience. One, God will first crush us with his law in order to, to drive us to his Christ. God's law crushes sinners. We look at the holy requirements of God, simply even as summarized in the Ten Commandments, summarized even more in the words of Christ from the Gospels, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We measure ourselves up against that standard and are undone by that. We are ruined before God. We could have no confidence and no hope before him we are damned for sure. And it is only then that we have been crushed by the law that we might actually be driven to Christ our Savior. Another way that I might describe this in our experience. In a general sense, God will break us in order to show us mercy. I'm going to say that again. God will break us in order to show us mercy. He does it over and over again. Why is it that way? Because if you're like me, I, I am hearing those words coming out of my mouth. I sit under the word too, and I'm like, yeah, I, I believe that's true. The scripture bears witness to it. I really, though, would wish it were different. Like, surely I understand enough now that I don't have to be broken in order to actually want to receive mercy. God works this way because it isn't until we are crushed on the one hand, by the law, that we see how much we need mercy. And it isn't until we've come to the end of ourselves that we would even cast ourselves upon it. Such is our nature. We, if there is anything that we can contribute, we will cling to that till death. And the Lord essentially has to rend that foolishness from our hands that we might cast ourselves upon his mercy in Christ. 
All that by way of scene number two in thinking about God's provision for Hagar and Ishmael. We now make our way to scene number three. I was going to tell you scene three is going to be even briefer than scene one and two because we are making our way to epic scene number four, which is Isaac on Mount Moriah. Scene number three is just simply Abraham and Abimelech. Abraham and Abimelech. We're going to look at verses 22 to 34 of chapter 21. It's pretty wild. I don't know if you've thought about this much. I know Rob made this comment one time in an elders meeting when we were reading a portion of Genesis there. I've said it once from the pulpit. I think sometimes we don't think about how powerful and wealthy of a man Abraham must have been. Like, it's off the charts. I mean, this is like Elon Musk, Bezos kind of stuff. Like, the, the government, like the kings and the commanders of armies are going to talk to this dude saying, we want to make an agreement with you. Like, you are just you and your family and your estate and your wealth. You are significant enough that we need to deal with each other. It's kind of wild to think. So, we see, in beginning in verse 22, Abimelech, he's a man that we've thought about before, even last week. He approaches Abraham, and he says, God is with you in all that you do. Swear that you won't deal falsely with me, but that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with me. And Abraham says, I'll, I'll swear that. I'll do that. This whole scene, like I've said, is a reminder not only of how powerful and wealthy Abraham is as a man, but the Lord has provided for him immensely in spite of his failure. Verses 25 to 34. So beginning in verse 25, there's another scene that's also Abraham and Abimelech. A different agreement is reached. There's a dispute apparently over a well that was dug. Abraham had dug a well and some of Abimelech's servants have seized it. And so then Abraham reproves. He goes to Abimelech with this grievance. And he says, look, some of your servants have taken this well that I have dug It's not okay. We need to make this right. They end up making a covenant with each other over that as well, that this well, in fact, belongs to Abraham. Abraham calls that place Beersheba, which means the well of the oath. And then he plants a tamarisk tree, and he lives there in Beersheba. In all of this stuff, we not only see the provision of God for Abraham in terms of money and wealth, power, that kind of stuff, we're reminded anew of God's promise to Abraham that he's going to give Abraham's offspring a land. Like, they're going to have a place to dwell. You see all of these dynamics at play, even in Abraham's interactions with Abimelech here. That's scene three. So now I hope, hope popcorn's out. hope you got your jumbo Coke because we have made our way to one of the greatest chapters, I think, in all of Scripture, one of the greatest chapters in the Old Testament Genesis chapter 22, I've just entitled the scene, scene number four, Abraham and Isaac. We could call it the substitute, but that's a reference to a movie that some may know. It's not the greatest, it's okay. Abraham and Isaac, scene four, Genesis 22, 1 to 19. I don't want to bury the lead here. I'm not going to do the kind of bait and switch thing or where we kind of make our way through the chapter and at the end I kind of pull the rabbit out of the hat and everybody's like, oh, that was great. I don't want to do that this morning. Like I said, this chapter is one of the most striking in all of Scripture from a prophetic standpoint and also from a literary standpoint. This is one of those chapters that screams God ultimately inspired this book. Because this is written a long time, a long time before anything pertaining to the life and ministry of Christ would occur. And Christ is all over this chapter. 
Maybe you wonder, you hear me, you hear people who are up here in the front regularly say that the whole Bible is about Jesus. And maybe occasionally you're like, yeah, but is it though? Is the whole Bible really about Christ? Consider even this passage that we're going to look at this morning. Again, so, so many years before Christ would even come. In this passage, we have a promised offspring, a promised son. A miraculous birth produced this offspring. We have an only beloved son, that's the language of the passage, riding to the place of sacrifice on a donkey. When it comes time for the sacrifice to be made, no one else can come but the promised son and his father. There is wood that's going to be used for sacrifice. And that wood is going to be placed upon this promised son's shoulders. And he's going to carry it up a hill. This wood is the wood upon which he would die. And mind you, this mountain that he is walking up, this hill that Isaac is climbing, the promised son with wood on his back, is the very place where the temple would be built one day. Mount Moriah. Nobody knew that when Moses wrote this. And on that mountain at the right time, a sacrifice, a substitute would be provided. Now let's consider the chapter. Verse 1, you can put your eyes there. After these things, a number of years have passed by. After these things, God tested Abraham. And this turns out to be a kind of like comprehensive final exam, if you will, for Abraham. Remember, though, in looking at this text, Abraham does not know that this is a test. God doesn't say that to him. We're privy to that information. He was not. It's kind of like Job, right? You remember Job chapter 1 and 2 where we get the behind-the-curtains peek at what's going on in the heavenlies, right? Where Satan comes to the Lord and says, you know, more or less, you've got this servant Job. I mean, where, where are all the righteous in the world? And, and God points to Job. Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan's like, well, yeah, but he only loves you because you bless him. And there's this situation where God gives Satan permission to afflict Job. But Job didn't know that, right, in that whole scenario. Abraham doesn't know that this is a test. What is this test? Well, at its heart, this test is to believe the promises of God. Track with me. Remember what God had said to Abraham. Remember promises that had been made. Genesis 17, the Lord said, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Genesis chapter 21. God says to Abraham, we just looked at these verses. Genesis 21, 12. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is what the Lord says is told him. The test is to believe these promises, even as the test Abraham is facing 
calls those very promises into question. You get that, right? I get that. I get, okay, yeah, you're, you're promising all these things through Isaac, but if he dies, what? Let's reflect together for just a moment regarding faith in the promises of God. How many times, as you think about the biblical witness, how many times has it looked like the light is about to go out on redemption? There's a number of them. How many times has it looked as though the light is about to go out on the promises of God? Like, it's over. There's no way this is going to happen. You've got this account here with Isaac. You've got Jacob and his family being driven down to Egypt in famine. You've got Israel in slavery under Pharaoh. You've got Israel at the banks of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army closing in on them. You've got a shepherd boy with a rock, or a few rocks, excuse me, and a sling standing before a giant warrior. He's the Lord's anointed for crying out loud. If he dies, what's going to happen? You have the northern kingdom of Israel conquered by the Assyrians. You have the southern kingdom of Judah conquered by the Babylonians. The holy city is leveled. The temple is destroyed. The people are exiled. You have 400 years when the prophets go silent. It's crickets for four centuries. Nobody speaks on behalf of God. And then, of course, there's the Friday afternoon. Finally, when the one who shows up claiming to be the Christ, he's controversial, but he shows up claiming to be the one, there's the Friday afternoon when he's killed on a Roman cross. And then there's the Saturday when his body is laying in the grave and his disciples are meeting in fear and grief in some upper room somewhere. But think about us. Think about our own experiences and our wrestlings with faith and the promises of God. We are promised forgiveness and righteousness in the word. The Lord says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The Apostle John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He goes on to say, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then there's these words, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those are promises of God from the Word. There are also promises about resurrection and final salvation that the Lord makes to us. Consider again the writer to the Hebrews. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Jesus in John chapter 11, says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Those are promises. The Apostle Paul, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if 
While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's a word. And then the words of Christ again, for this is the will of my father. When Jesus talks about the will of his father, we ought to listen. Jesus says, the will of my father is that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Wonderful promises. Those aren't all the promises God makes to us. He makes promises to us of eternal blessedness with him and with one another. Listen to these words. This is John and his revelation. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Later in that same book, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And the people of God hear those kind of promises, and I hope somebody shouts, amen, may it be. And at the same time, here's the thing. Our lives, our experiences in this fallen world, our feelings, our consciences, our enemy, the great accuser of the brethren, everything preaches a different word than what I just read. Everything preaches a different word to us than those wonderful promises of God I just read. Who said faith is easy? It's not. At the end of it all, brothers and sisters, as we think about even this test that Abraham went through, at the end of it all, the question for all of us, it's a simple one. It's do we believe God? Do we take his word for it? When God looks at us and effectively has this dialogue with us and he says, do you see my son? Do you see my son? Because of him, your sins are forgiven. Because of him, righteousness, yours. Because of him, salvation, secured. Because of him, resurrection and eternal blessedness, certain. Do you take my word on that? Do you trust me on that?
and he bids us come. Let the one who thirsts come and drink of the water of life without payment. It's free. To which we respond as the saints have always responded. Yes, Lord, we believe and help our unbelief. It's the prayer we pray all the time. Let's make our way back to the passage. Just thinking about the wrestlings of faith in our experience. It's quite remarkable what Abraham went through. But don't you think that you don't go through similar kinds of things? Chapter 22 serves as a kind of bookend of Abraham's life of faith. Abraham, we've considered his life. We've been honest about his life. He has failed in some epic ways. We've considered those. And he acts with great faith at points. That should sound familiar to you. This particular act here, where he is ready to kill Isaac, it will be commemorated and noted by several other writers of Scripture. It will be remembered forever. In the life of Abraham, you can't get around it. This, at the same time, saint and sinner thing, this, at the same time, he's justified and he's a sinner thing, keeps showing up. We should not be surprised that it does. When you hear, even me say, Abraham has royally messed up at points, and Abraham has acted with great faith at points. You ought to think, that sounds like a lot of things I've read about Christians through history. You ought to think, that sounds kind of like my life. When you think about just the mundane things, we shouldn't be surprised when the saints just daily, day after day after day, putting one foot in front of the other, just keep trusting the Lord, praise be to his name, and the saints day after day after day battle the flesh and sometimes lose. It's been the experience of God's people for millennia. Here, Abraham is going to display great faith. Great faith. And remember, too, that even this act of faith is decades in the making. God had declared this man justified decades ago. So don't be short-sighted even when you think about your own life. We shouldn't be. The Lord is not done with us. The book is not written yet. He is faithful to sanctify everyone who has been united to his son by faith. Sometimes it takes decades for some of that stuff to manifest. It took a long time with Abraham for him to get to this place. Notice the language, though. I mean, thinking about the faith of this man here, I want to I hold this up a little bit because we have thought honestly about his failure. Look at verse 5 of chapter 22. This whole business has gone down. I mean, God said, take Isaac up on the mountain, kill him. And Abraham, just the next morning, I mean, he doesn't dawdle. It's like, all right, let's go do this. He saddles up his donkeys, gets it all ready. They're going. Then they get to the place after three days' journey, and he says to the young men who are with him, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, I am of the mindset, like many who read this, I don't know anybody that actually has a different take on it, it's clear that Abraham believes somehow Isaac's going to come down the mountain. Somehow. Then you get the words of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. Listen to this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham is effectively saying, God's going to keep his promise, even if it means raising Isaac from the dead, the boy's coming back down the mountain with me. It's pretty remarkable. Then in verse 7, put your eyes there. Isaac asks Abraham a question. He's like, look, Father, behold, there's fire, we got fire, we got wood, but where's the lamb? We're not told how old Isaac is. He's clearly old enough to carry on a relatively mature conversation with his father, and he's old enough to carry wood up a mountain. So he's not a small child. But perhaps lost in all this is what is going through Isaac's mind? I mean, holy smokes, right? What does he think about this? In the end, we don't know. We're not told. I think the reason for the lack of detail on Isaac's perspective, I'll speak more of this in a minute, is due to the prophetic nature of this passage. Because this is about Jesus, ultimately, right? Isaac does end up, we, we've read it, right? He ends up bound on the altar. We don't know what Abraham and Isaac talked about. We don't know if there was any kind of struggle for Abraham to have to like overcome him and bind him on the altar, though that's doubtful because Isaac's probably in his teens and Abraham's like a hundred and something. Not a fair fight, right? So that's doubtful. I think, in the end, it's right to see that Isaac was submissive. Which in and of itself is remarkable. And like I said, I think the lack of specific information and the conclusion that Isaac was submissive is legit because this is ultimately about Christ. And remember what's said about Christ. He was obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 8, Abraham says to Isaac, when Isaac says, where's the lamb, dad? Abraham says, God's going to provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. You bet he will. He provides it here. But Abraham, this is one of those many times in the scriptures where Abraham, like the saints often do, speaks far better than he knows. Over 2,000 years later, God would provide the lamb who would take away the sin of the world. In verse 9, the altar is built, the wood is arranged, the sun is bound, and is laid on the altar. And so then in verses 10 to 13, we have reached this kind of climactic point. In verse 10, Abraham takes his knife in hand to kill his son. In this verse, I think lest we were thinking that Abraham was just kind of playing, like he, he ain't really going to do this, it seems that he was prepared to go through with it. And again, remember in all of it, he doesn't know that the Lord is testing him. Then in verses 11 and 12, we have the angel of the Lord showing up again. The angel of the Lord calls to Abraham from heaven to stop him. So let's brief pause button. What is the identity of the one who calls to Abraham? We've talked about this before. The angel of the Lord, when we see him show up in the pages of the Old Testament. That word rendered angel, just like the word rendered angel in the New Testament, simply means messenger. He is 
the messenger, the word bearer of the Lord, yet the angel of the Lord identifies as the Lord. He uses first-person language. He speaks as the Lord. There's, I mean, famous passage, like Exodus 3 in the burning bush, I and mean, that's the angel of the Lord, right? This is Yahweh speaking. Christians from the very beginning of the church have understood the angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Put that in your mind. Back to the story. The father, Abraham, is ready and about to kill his son, and the very one who calls to Abraham to stop the sacrifice of Isaac is the very one who would one day take the place of Isaac and himself become the sacrifice. And he did that to save all of God's people from all time. The one who calls to Abraham to stop him from killing his son is the very son of God who would willingly lay his life down according to the plan that he and his father had made. The pre-incarnate Christ says, stop, Abraham, don't kill him. Don't kill Isaac. It's not necessary because I'm going to come and die. The angel of the Lord goes on. He says in verse 12 to Abraham that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham was prepared to offer his only son, demonstrating that he is living based upon the word of God. Amen. And there is more to it than that. When we hear those words from Genesis 22, you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, we ought to think Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Huge question for me to wrestle with, for you to wrestle with. Is God gracious toward us? Has he shown us grace? Answer, yes. Emphatic, yes. How do we know that he is gracious and that he has shown us grace? The evidence is that he has not withheld his only son from us. How do we know that God is graciously inclined toward us? Christ. He is the grace of God to us. Right? We struggle so often because we, we wrestle. Like, is God gracious? My life is terrible. It's falling apart. My heart's breaking. My circumstances are trash. Is God gracious? Yes. Christ's life for yours is the testimony of God's grace to you. It's not your life. It's Christ for you is the evidence of God's grace. All the evidence it turns out that we need. Christ is the testimony of the grace of God. Let's make our way back to the passage in verse 13. In light of all of this that's going on, the one who's speaking, what he's saying, it's only fitting at that very moment that Abraham lifts his eyes and sees a ram caught in a thicket. The sacrifice is provided right then. The Lord has provided a substitute. And at that moment, 
It's right to see the ram and Isaac both pointing to what Christ would accomplish on behalf of his people. You have the ram who is killed as a substitute like Christ would be for sin. And you have Isaac, the promised son, who lives just as Christ would get up from the grave to live forever. In verse 14, Abraham names the place the Lord will provide or the Lord will see to it. He has, brothers and sisters, seen to it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 15 to 18, the angel of the Lord calls out to Abraham a second time. Let's look at those verses briefly together. Beginning in verse 16, he says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Verse 18 is massively significant. That is the verse that Paul references in Galatians 3.16. The singular offspring of Abraham, the promises were made not to offsprings, but to offspring, namely Christ. There is a singular offspring of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. From beginning to the end, this account in Genesis 22 is about Jesus. Read it that way. What happened historically with Abraham and Isaac matters, and it isn't ultimate. Ultimately, this is about our redemption, atonement for our sin, and the provision of a substitute. So as we conclude our time together this morning, I want to briefly consider the significance of this theological truth, the fact that God provides a substitute for us. The giving of a substitute, a representative, a person to stand in the place of sinners, is at the heart of the gospel. You have no gospel without substitution, without representation, without one who as a man could die for men and as a man could Keep the law for men. It also turns out that you need one who is infinite in order to be able to atone for all of the sins of man and to provide righteousness for all. People often struggle with Christianity and object to it. That's not news to anyone in this room. If you've had even one conversation with somebody outside these walls, maybe, hey, maybe somebody inside these walls, right? People struggle with Christianity and object to it and its message. People get hung up on the fact that God says, you are to love me above all things, you are to obey my word, and for those who do not, there is judgment. People get hung up on that. The way that this is often presented is love God and obey him or else. Sometimes people who are struggling talk like that. Who is God to demand such things? It's not gracious. That's not loving. How is that good? Well, if Christianity, friends, is about law and gospel, that depiction, love God, obey him or else, is very distorted. Incredibly so. That is not at all describe the message of Christianity. Here's the rest of it. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to do everything that he says, and if we do not, we face judgment. 
true. But here's the rest. God does say, you are to love me above all things. You are to obey my word always. If you don't, you are rightly condemned. And here's the deal. Says the Lord, I know you aren't doing that. And I know you won't do that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give my son. He's going to come willingly. and He is going to become a human being. And he's going to stand in your place. And he's going to represent you. He will live the life that you are supposed to live but haven't. He will live the life that I require. And he will do it in your place. He will die a lawbreaker's death that he doesn't deserve. He will stand in for you. He will take your punishment so that you don't have to. In the end, because he will have done enough and because the grave cannot hold him, he's going to rise again. He will live forever and he will raise you up with him on the last day. You will be with him and you will be like him. And you will be my people. I will be your God. I will wipe away all the tears that you've ever cried and you will enter into my joy forever. That's the rest of it. Friends, the Lord is a savior. He is a redeemer. He delights to shower mercy and grace on people who don't deserve it. He will not hold over our heads forever that we are unworthy. He will invite us to enter into his joy. And he will share that joy with us. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you and admit our frailties and even our lack of faith and all of the things that we wrestle with, the sin that has even been in our minds and hearts today. Father, we ask for mercy, mercy for our sins, mercy that you would take away shame and guilt and fear. Father, give us faith that we may trust all of your promises, especially these wonderful promises you've made to us in your son, because all of your promises find their yes and amen in him. May we trust Christ. Father, be with us even as we come to your table. May we be joyful even as we come to eat this meal together that proclaims what Christ has done for us, may we not be afraid. Continue to sustain us. Continue to make us more like Christ. Continue to give us faith that we may love you and our neighbor. And we pray for these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.